Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Tom nice Britt. To, nice to see you. Eric. Yeah, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. Uh, pretty fired up as the last 15 minutes we've been talking about beer. And two of my favorite topics, beer and business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be an exciting ride. And It has been. Yeah, I bet. I'm, and I'm thrilled to hear about it. I'm trying to think now when actually I met you. And I think I was just, it may have been, it was pre-COVID. Oh my gosh, that long It ago. was pre-COVID. Okay. Uh, I was just kind of searching around on LinkedIn for people locally with uh-huh. businesses and interesting stories so I could get them on the podcast. And uh, you were nice enough to answer my LinkedIn message. You invited me in. You showed me around mm-hmm. uh, your, your office and your business and what you guys are mm-hmm. doing there. And I didn't expect so much innovation in what you were doing there. Right here in Whitefish, Montana. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, right here in the Flathead Valley. So it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be really interesting. I'm 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 excited to, I guess, uncover all the things you do here in this little spot. You don't that have people... enough time. <laughs> yeah, right. So let's start with this, Tom. Start with your backstory. How did you get to where you are um, at Glacier Hops Ranch? And uh, yeah, tell us tell us all that. I'll give you the. Um... Uh, the abridged version. So we started it in 2012. The idea came up from our county extension agent. Uh, I had some acreage that I wanted to put into a different crop. Uh, She suggested that I look at hops. Uh, I thought she was smoking crack because I had never looked at hops as uh, as an option. I'd never even seen, honestly, stopped and seen a a hop plant uh, back at the time. She said, you know, you're a marketing guy. Do some research. You can figure out maybe you can supply Montana breweries and and create a side gig. In hops, there is no such thing as a side gig. I learned that real quickly. But I did my research, and we uh, we did a uh, in 2013 we broke ground and put in a, um, a research hop yard uh, at my ranch down uh, between Kalispell and Whitefish, and that became the origin of Glacier Hops Ranch. Uh, we got up to 44 or 46 different varieties, and we were testing to try to figure out which varieties of hops could grow in Montana. Montana is not a known as a hop growing region. Uh, Eastern Montana, as you're probably aware, is a very big barley, uh, gr- malting barley, specific strains that are good for malting barley. So that's a very, very good uh, region there. But hops, no. I mean, <clears throat> it's it's all over in Idaho or Washington. Around you know, 72% of the U.S. crop is grown in the two counties around Yakima, Washington, and then down in the Willamette Valley. Um, Anyway, so I went into it knowing probably less than nothing, I think would be fair, uh, which is actually sometimes a really good base because what I found is there was very little accurate information out there. 
make a long story short, uh, our business model changed in probably 2015, where because once you get hops in, they take it's a perennial plant takes uh, probably. Uh, typically in this neck of the woods, probably three years to mature, to have a mature crop. So I had people saying we'd really like to support Montana grown hops, but uh, we need these right now. Can you get some East Kent Goldinger? Can you get some Cascade? I'm short of this. Can you find that? So I began sourcing hops for them and developing some relationships. And that became the origin of us brokering. And by 2018 was our last harvest and uh, we pulled our hops out completely. And now we are a broker dealer uh, working with growers from Montana to New Zealand. Um, and uh, we, uh, we buy from growers all over the world and we sell to about 50 countries right now. Probably 75% of our business today is international. The other part of it is in 2014, Actually, there's a funny story. It was probably in 2013 or 14. I forgot when. And when I moved here 26 years ago, mint was either the first or second largest uh, crop here, uh, cherries and mint, believe it or not. Summertime in like July and August, the valley floor just smelled like spearmint or peppermint during harvest. It was it was really cool. And uh, anyway, there were 15 distilleries here. Uh, pretty much they... Almost all of them have either been salvaged off, parted out, mothballed, whatever. So they're pretty much gone. And she's the same extension, uh, Montana State Extension agent suggested to me or asked me, can you use any of this excess capacity for hop extraction? And so I did some research like a good marketing guy. And of course, I found out the answer was no. Because the industry uses CO2, supercritical extraction, and it pulls out the alpha acids, beta acids, and then the oils. And that's really how you get stuff out. And uh, <clears throat> so I uh, walked away from that. And in 2014, Sierra Nevada Brewing came out with a uh, an IPA called Hop Hunter IPA. And they made a big deal about uses fresh steam distilled hops and as an ingredient uh, distilled right on the farm. And so I thought, wait a minute, didn't she ask about steam distillation? So we did some research. 2015, they actually came out with the beer. They launched the beer. I paid attention. We got, um, uh, we tested, could we get oil out of these hops? So obviously we were growing hops at the time, sent them to a USDA uh, research distillery, and uh, we got eight ounces of oil to last us a year. And it was, we had no idea how to use it. I felt like a farm dog chasing a pickup truck down a gravel road. And I just caught the dog I had, or caught the, I caught the uh, truck and I had no idea what to do with the truck. So we tried, um, um, I remember sitting uh, down with the uh, management crew, brewers and uh, everybody at the Great Northern Brewing Brewing Company, downtown Whitefish. And we're trying to figure out what this stuff is. And we would take maybe six ounces of a, light beer and we'd put a drop in and everybody would taste it and it was like hmm that's not very good and then so if that's not very good well let's add another one and they would say hmm that's even less good and then we well that didn't work so let's try another style of beer so we tried that it it was it didn't work we tried that a few times and um it was just a complete accident. I was in La Jolla, California, talking to a brewer uh, there, and I I said, um, "What's your lightest beer?" And he pulled out a honey blonde ale, and um, 
I don't know what possessed me to do this. I pulled out a coffee stir stick instead of a dropper and I just got it wet. And I just stirred that around in his little snifter glass. And he brought it to his nose and his eyes got big like saucers and his mouth dropped. And he said, I know what that's supposed to smell like. That does not smell like that at all. And that's when I realized we'd been grossly overdosing it. Right. So it's an essential oil, basically. And um, so we learned a few things in this whole process. Number one, we learned when I was doing all of this varietal testing, seeing what varieties should grow, that was the wrong thing I that I should have been testing. I should have been testing instead of what varieties will grow. I should have been finding out which varieties can sell. Because just like apples or any other... Um, fruit commodity flower whatever you it isn't what you can grow it's what you can sell and so learning that probably would have saved a few years in, in the development number two is we learned that this oil that we do right now which we call hops oil that what we were perceiving was the final product was actually just a raw ingredient because it's an oil it floats on top of the water and and so it's not soluble in beer so our first year with that was pretty um, inconsistent in terms of results and just in the last year and a half we've uh, developed multiple technologies to make it water soluble and that doesn't seem like a really big deal but it actually is a huge deal we've gone through our, our lead chemist has gone through probably over 500 formulations to try to come up with two one is a clear and one is a hazy um, that actually fit the market and contain ingredients that uh, work in modern brewing and don't have bad stuff in them and things that are or maybe illegal or throw um, like in some countries adding uh, ethanol uh, pure alcohol to um, uh, to into a beer is illegal it's there are certain there's a lot of legalities in it. You just can't do it in some countries. Some countries allow it. Some states don't allow it. There's all these. Uh, you technically can. Yeah, the TTB uh, uh, allows you to use it. There's an exemption with hops. You can blend it with hop extracts. And yes, you can do that. But there are some other, Im, um, I don't want to say imperfections, um, uh, less than ideal uh, situations using ethanol with um, it does create an emulsion, but it doesn't fully emulsion, emulsify every all the compounds in there. So it ends up, again, being inconsistent. Now we have a new technology, um, basically one new technology that has multiple offshoots of it that it's wonderful. Everything is emulsified. Uh, it blends, cleans up with water. Um, it's uh, It's... The reaction, I judge things, whether they're any good or not, by the reaction of, of potential customers or existing customers. And we've had uh, customers that loved the original pure oil with ethanol, <clears throat> and they've switched because it's so much easier to work with. And it's consistent, and it's the same every time. And that's one of the things about brewing. Uh, it's such an art. It's certainly science. But it's such an art because you have to deal with different crop years using agriculture products. You're using malted barley. You're using yeast. You're using hops from different crop years and, and maybe in different fields. Maybe it has this kind of alpha acid or that level of alpha acids. Well, you've got to adjust it. It's, it's truly art and science. It's, and 
And I think if the average person knew how much went into making their beer consistent or a large brewer, let's say like Anheuser-Busch or I'm just going to say Budweiser, at multiple breweries across the country with different water, different pH water and so on and so forth and making it taste the same every time is as much uh, creativity and science to be consistent as it is for a small craft brewer to do crazy wild stuff that you know just inflames the uh, senses. So there's two different kinds of creativity. The whole industry is just loaded with creativity. Can we let's talk about the industry? I mean, sure. I uh, I'm curious how we're. I mean, going back, so I'll probably age myself here, but I don't think craft brewing was a thing until I got to like late high school. Like, I remember if Sierra Nevada would consider themselves a craft brewery, that's that was my kind of my first introduction, right? Um, and I have tried brewing beer. I got one of those like you know kits, and it's not for me. I'd rather drink it. I think that's like a lot of people really trying. They're like, well, this is a lot of cleaning. It's a lot of measuring. It's a lot of patience, right? And it turned out it wasn't that good anyway. And then I just had a lot of it. And so I think, that, you know, there's a lot of people who have gone down that route. I appreciate the process and can see how, um, how much repetition it must take to get it right, right? Mm-hmm. But I guess as a whole, like, can you give us a little bit of background on the craft brewing industry, kind of when it started its growth. I mean, now it's humongous. You get a, I mean, here, even in the Valley, in the Flathead Valley, it's really starting to boom. But, you know, we lived for a while in, uh, in, uh, Oregon and God, in Bend, Oregon, you get, <laughs> it's like every block, right? Everything I did, they included a beer, a haircut, a beer, shopping, a beer. Our like key every- accounts manager mm-hmm. lives in Bend. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, give us some background. I'm, I'm curious to hear. So about it the really kind of, t- changed the the landmark change was when uh, Jimmy Carter was president and he signed a, a bill into law that basically legalized home brewing and so that allowed uh, anybody to homebrew up to I believe it was 300 gallons of beer for their own personal use without taxation. And so the feds created that and that blew up home brewing. Well, a lot of these home brewers actually, believe it or not, were good. <laughs> and uh, and then they create they kind of went in. You, you got places like, uh, you know, uh, New Belgium started in a garage or a basement. You know, it was a lot of these breweries. None of the big breweries, none of the big regional breweries or micro breweries, craft breweries per se. Nobody starts big. Uh, everybody started small and grew. And so um, um, the if I want to say in 1978, there were 76 active breweries in the United States, or it was 1976 to 78. It was something like that. But in the late 70s, <clears throat> we were at our lowest point um, in recent history. Um, in When I got into it in 2012, that year the U.S. broke 2,000 breweries um, nationwide and it was um, probably mid-year and by late in the year of 2012, like by say November-ish, something like that, they passed a milestone that there were more breweries in the United States than any time since the Civil War. At the Civil War, every, you know, in the late 1800s, every little town, I mean, we didn't have interstate highways. We didn't have highways, really. And every little town, we didn't have cold storage. We didn't have cold chain. Um, Every little town had its little brewery. A town that I grew up in Minnesota of, you know, 4,200 
uh, people. There was a, an old building called the brewery. Well, it was probably closed for 50 or 60 years by the time I was born, but it was, it was there. And uh, that was the same across America. So to hit that 2,150 number, whatever, <clears throat> um, that was a big deal. And today we're at about uh, roughly about 9,500. I haven't heard the, the latest number. We had an interruption in growth with uh, the pandemic uh, really in 2020, but the number of closings uh, was not very much, not nearly what they were expecting. They were expecting the worst, but it wasn't as bad as, as it was. So um, I, I can tell you in the UK, uh, so the UK has, uh, what, 80, 85 million people, something like that, and they've got 3,000 breweries. So, and they grew during the pandemic. They grew during 2020 in terms of their, their number. We actually do a fair amount of business over there. So the, the, um, uh, and, and, uh, boy, let's see here. I was in Brazil two and a half years ago and they had, I think 400 craft breweries. And I believe I saw the number is 3,500 today. Uh, so it's, um, different pot. What's what happened in 20, 15 to 2018, I think it was, the percentage of growth of production uh, in of, of craft breweries grew. It was growing 12, 15, 17, 18 percent a year, something like that. And I think it was in 2019, all of a sudden that number dropped down to about 7 percent growth. Now, realize the bigger you get, the harder it is to maintain that rate of growth. Don't get confused with with. Um, actual numerical growth with percentage rate of growth. So the rate of growth slowed, but it slowed way down. Part of that, there were two things that was going on. Um, part of that was increased production, hard to keep it up. The other was how they measure it. And so um, the big guys, AB InBev, um, Heineken, Constellation Brands, Molson Coors, um, is the old saying, if you can't beat them, buy them. And so Goose Island, Elysian, uh, Ballast Point, uh, a bunch of them were acquired. And so those numbers came out of the craft brew percentage and went into the commercial uh, because they were the definition of craft beer by the Brewers Association. Part of it has to do with ownership. And so... Um, uh, that's why Boston Beer is still in the craft segment. Sierra Nevada is still in the craft segment. Uh, so, um, but anyway, so the rate of growth of craft, the craft segment, <clears throat> is now down to about 4%, which is pretty good. I mean, we're still growing 4% a year in any other industry. That's not bad. Whereas beer overall consumption, I think, was down 1.5% last year. Um Another interesting side tangent is that seltzers, seltzers is now seltzers that are produced by uh, hard seltzers where it's a malted beverage. So the alcohol is produced through the fermentation of malt. Um, and I'm going all the way back to Zima, which is the first non-beer. If you remember Zima. that, I remember Zima. Yeah, uh, that was Bartles and James as well. Was one of my first no, that memories. was a wine cooler. That was a wine cooler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Zima, Zima was a malt was... beverage that Coors came out with back in gosh, 1989, something like that. So a little different, but you know, like uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade uh, is a malt beverage, and um, that is now going to be, I believe, this year, 10% of the beer market of the overall beer market, not craft. So there's lots of people that are redefining themselves as a craft brewery. Uh, this is kind of a recent in the last, I'd say, 
pandemic-driven uh, pivot-your-business-model survival kind of a thing. We're seeing breweries that are also uh, putting, they're doing distillation. They're doing, uh, they're making cider. Uh, they're doing a seltzer. They're doing, they're a beverage company. And so the, what, what was <clears throat> these independent, you know, we're very, very traditional. I heard that so many times um, in, in their approach. People have had to pivot their business model Really, it was really accelerated during the pandemic, the early part of the pandemic, pivot or die. <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, having to uh, uh, get state laws changed so they could do home delivery or sell growlers or and then the canning lines, you know, portable canners. Because if you did, if your if your tap room was closed in mid-year 2020, you're out of business and because of the lockdown. And so, but if you could get a, a temporary canning line in and you could get stuff canned and labeled and get it into a grocery store, or convenience store, at least you could be open for business or at least sell it by the growler, like breweries here in, the, in that were, their tap room was closed here in the Flathead Valley, but they were only open for growler sales. I went into one of them uh, recently, well, I, last year, gosh, when was it? Um, last late summer, fall, and I thought they'd be, okay, they got time to talk and we can do some experimentation with our oils. It was a steady stream of guys coming in with one to three growlers, fill them up, fill them up, and taking them home. So yeah, that was another thing. Uh, we knew that we had customers that were craft breweries that were in grocery stores or convenience stores, and uh, they were canning or bottling, <clears throat> and uh, their numbers were up 20 to 30%. So the survival last year and or, or growth was really driven by business model. Are you a tap room? I mean, it's, it's more profitable to sell your own product in your own distribution channel, your tap room. Um, but if in that situation during the pandemic, thousands across the country were closed. And if you take a look at it more of a macro perspective and look at globally, uh, Mexico shut down all of their brewing capacity. They could import beer and sell imported beer in Mexico. South Africa, their solution was well, people gather and get exposed to the, to the virus. So let's just stop all alcohol sales, which created a fantastic black market. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> so we've seen that before. Yeah. Right? So yeah. people are, they're going to find their beer one way or the other. And um, so there was a lot of creativity and pivoting last year uh, to um, survive. And so as a result, we are seeing um, in a real interesting movement to um, uh, look at new ways to be more efficient. So one of the, uh, before we started this, you and I were talking about IPAs, whether you like them or you don't like them, and the kind that have become the new fad, if you will, that are, is growing uh, as a, IPAs used to be just one category. It was an IPA, India Pale Ale. Yeah. And we'll get into the story about that, how they, in a second. <clears throat> but um now, today, there's a half a dozen different kinds of IPAs. There's just standard IPAs. There's uh, double IPAs, imperial IPAs. There's hazy IPAs. There's juicy IPAs. There's New England IPAs. And the, the unicorn out there is non-alcoholic IPAs, which we actually produced for a big trade show last weekend, which is how alcohol is removed from a beer to create a, a alcohol-free beer. 
when that happens, you take out some of the thiols and flavonoids to remove that come out with the alcohol, and you end up with a pretty boring, plain flavored water. It it doesn't taste like beer. And we had uh, actually the former head brewer of Coors, uh, Keith Villa. Uh, he was actually the brewer that came, or the brewmaster, excuse me, brilliant man. He's the one who came up with the recipe for Blue Moon. And so he created our NAIPA for this trade show. Um, and uh, it was so full of flavor. So it's so anyway, so what did I say? There's the six or seven different kinds of IPAs. That was seven. Seven, okay. Yeah, so yeah, and so the the category, which is the biggest category in craft brewing, has now become seven subcategories that people are chasing and, and so on and so forth. So I promise you the story about IPAs. You, are you familiar with the whole story? What really happened or the short version of Not it? Not really. I mean, all I know about the evolution of IPAs is that I remember it coming out years and years ago. And now when I go into a brewery, I get annoyed because half of the board is IPAs, right? And I don't really know enough about them. So I just stay, I steer clear. So I'd be interested in hearing how the IPAs have evolved. Well, let's go back to around 1860 or 1850, whenever the British were, 1840, whenever the British were colonizing India, okay, how do you keep a soldier happy? He's got to have his beer, okay? So what they were having trouble with was the schooner ride from, uh, with kegs of beer and in, in wooden barrels uh, from the, the breweries that were at ports in Western, the Western UK, what is now the Western UK, and um, to make it all the way around Cape Town uh, to the ports in uh, India. And that's a long way uh, not being refrigerated for them to be preserved. So what they have known for years is that hops contain a preservative. The beta acids generally are considered to be the preservative in there. The alpha acids create the, the, um, the bittering. And then the oils create the flavoring. Um, so the, uh, and there's lots of variables on those, but, but basically accurate. So what they would do to help these English ales survive the ride is they, in theory, um, would, they, they would stuff all kinds of additional hops into every batch. And those really hoppy beers, uh, became known as India pale ales. There's, there's actually a great book on it, and that's, that is the story, and the truth is a little bit different than that, but it makes for a great story anyway. So India Pale Ales, the British consider that to be a new American style. The Americans consider that to be a historic British style that they don't make anymore. You know, so it's the whole. So that's where IPAs came for from. It was a. A very flavorful, uh, full of hops uh, style of beers, and craft brewers are—they're um, known for their IPAs. They're judged on their IPAs. Some craft brewers that I talked to at the craft brewers conference, they make IPAs. They hate IPAs, and they prefer to make um, really traditional German styles or Czech styles or um, or. Yeah, all kinds of different styles. There's so many different styles of beer. IPAs are just one, but they're associated. It, it's interesting. They're associated with the craft brewing movement. A brewer, a craft brewer is judged by his IPAs too many times. Um, and uh, 
it, it's and the, as a segment, it still continues to grow, and now it's fragmented into what the seven different styles that we talked about, and uh, nobody knows where it's going to go. Some people said, well. Uh, sours that's going to be the next IPA it only appeals to a certain segment so I don't see that happening we're seeing a lot of craft breweries do really focus on really good lagers really good pilsners dunkels Kolsch uh, all kinds of different um, yeah and some really really good ones um, uh, you know Kalispell Brewing here in the valley they do an excellent pilsner excellent uh as an example and um uh so we're seeing a lot of that we're seeing other variations on a theme ipls um, india pale lagers so it's taking a lager and putting lots of hops into it to create a very hop forward lager a lot you know that's one of the beautiful things about the craft brewing industry is that it's full of experimentation, and they don't have the same constraints of the big commercial brewers. You, you've got artists. That's what you've got. We always say when we're down at these trade shows, we talk to – there's two different audiences. We've got the bean counters, which are the owners or the finance guys, and then we've got the artists. The artists just want to make the best beer in the world, damn the cost. And the uh, – bean counters group and they're proud to be called bean counters they got to figure out how to keep the doors open and how to make a profit and keeps and keep the operation being sustainable so the the state of the u.s craft brewing industry um is healthy um it's it's not on life support like it was in say april of 2020 um it's kind of sorted itself out it's uncertain but I will tell you that because this, the origins nationally or internationally have started in the U.S., the uh, compound annual growth rate of craft style breweries around the world, uh, whereas it's 4% here in the U.S., it's about 13% is what's projected. And it's hard to say what that is. We had a few beers with one of our customers from Moscow last week. And the conversation got to, you know, how do they learn? What do they emulate? What are they doing? And he said, oh, they just follow what the Americans are doing. <laughs> that was great. That was a really nice. I mean, it, it gave me a greater appreciation for the history of, of craft brewing. And I guess the, the question I have now, going back to what you guys are doing, is how is this, you know, as you described, an essential oil and the ability to make it water soluble. Mm -hmm. Why is that such a big deal? Well, um, you're taking all of the oil out of, of the hops. And one of the challenges, especially with all these hop forward beers, is um, it's biomass. So hops are the, the process of, of uh, preserving them and then shipping them and putting them into beer is they're dried in a kiln and they are um, for five to nine hours at 125 to 159 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, typically. And uh, while that burns off a lot of the um, wonderful volatile aromatics, um, it dries them and it takes the, the hops themselves from seven and a half to eight percent uh moisture content down to eight and a half to eleven percent moisture content and they are then compressed into bales that with a liner and uh bales weigh on average about 200 pounds 
and um, they're stored, they're frozen. They've got to be frozen. And then they are um, later after harvest, typically, uh, they're sent off and they're pelletized and put into a mylar foil pack because light is the enemy and they're they're usually dosed with uh, nitrogen, uh, beverage-grade nitrogen gas, to get rid of the oxygen. Oxygen is an enemy, and heat is an enemy because they lose their brewing values if un if kept warm at room temperature. So um, all those things happen, and and typically the units of measurement uh, are all based on metric. We're one of three countries that are not metric and we work in metric and imperial daily and i wish the united states had gone to metric and jerry ford was the one who killed that 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 is another podcast um but uh so the units of measurement we typically they're they're that's how they are typically um stored and then the brewers when they take them they've got these pellets they're easy to measure uh, they're easy to weigh and they're easy to figure, okay, I've got a three barrel batch, a 10 barrel batch, a hundred barrel batch, whatever it is, they know how many pounds to put in for that recipe and so on and so forth. Well, so you've got all this biomass from these little flower cones called hops and uh, a, an oily hop would have maybe um, two to 3% oil. Um, and then what is the percentage? There's a percentage that is alpha acid, beta acids, and then a whole bunch of other great compounds. There's as many as a thousand different compounds in the lupulin glands that are in the hops. But you put all this stuff in, and let's say you're doing a juicy IPA, and you're putting in three pounds, three and a half pounds. I mean, get stupid, four pounds of hops per barrel so in a 10 barrel batch you're putting in that many uh, all of that biomass in there to get out a limited amount of alpha acids beta acids and the oils the magic oils for flavoring so what we've learned is that for every pound of hops that you put into a batch for every pound on it, pound per barrel is the ratio, you're losing between 6.8 and 7.5% of the liquid. Okay? So you just multiply that, let's just take 7.5% because um, we have that number as a fact from a very large brewery. So you take 7.5% times, well, it, was, it came times a pound and a half. That's a 10% loss. So you're doing a 10 barrel batch. You just lost a pound and a, or a barrel and a half of beer in a tap room um, where you're going to get, say, 220 to 240 pours off of a barrel of beer. Um, the um, if I have my math right, or is that off of a half barrel keg? Anyway, at five dollars or or let's say for a, a juicy, heavy, like an expensive IPA to do. Uh, let's say five or six dollars per uh, per pint. Um, that's a lot of additional revenue because now, or lost revenue first. Let's start start with loss. That's a lot of lost revenue because it's just like um, oatmeal or instant rice. When you throw it into water, what happens? It sucks up the liquid. These pellets that remember uh, started out as as flowers 
with seven and a half, 75 to 80% moisture dried down, the cellular structure is still intact. And those cells suck up water and 10 times their weight in water. And so now you're throwing away all of that liquid that you've spent money making into beer and fermenting and so on and so forth at the tail end after fermentation you're adding you're steaming it kind of making a tea if you will to add this flavor and uh, for them to lose 10 percent or 20 percent or 33 percent is not unrealistic so you compare that whole thing where we in our process of making this essential oil and now we've made it water soluble and you add that after fermentation into the bright tank after they've typically after they put it from the fermentation to the bright tank um, they'll put it in line or they'll dump it into the bright tank before carbonation and then they carbonate it recirculate it and uh, they can package it the next day typically you dry hop what's called dry hopping you do that three to five days is the process to let it sit in there and for those flavors to steep um, and they can do this so easy with this water soluble literally just dump it into the tank and uh, then clean up with water it's so easy um, and they lose nothing there's no biomass we have removed the biomass so if all they want is the flavor and the aroma the sensory impact um, we're able to do that and so they make so much a brewer can be so much more efficient he can turn his batches faster his return on his asset is uh is better uh lots of interesting things uh so we can talk to the bean counters with a very very good message and we can talk to the artists with a very very good message because we're it's like putting fresh hops right out of the field because we capture everything in steam distillation it's a you know, it's very different than that CO2 process. Uh, we start with a different raw ingredient. We start with fresh hops, not dried hops. Different extraction process, totally different result. So it's a... And if you say, oh, Tom, was that the plan all along? <laughs> no. Right. So it's, uh, in essence, it's time and money. You're saving brewers time and money. And I, I would imagine due to the process and just like any any kind of new technology that comes in did you ever get pushback from the purists of oh uh, yeah what do they say we're traditional <laughs> okay so you may have heard of the german purity the beer purity law in germany Reinhutzgebot, which is now 505 years old i believe and so hop extracts of any kind are still not allowed in germany so everybody thinks of Germany as the, you know, the kind of the epicenter of beer and German beer is good, but I find that every bar or brewery you go into has the same five styles and I'm exaggerating a little bit, of course, but um, it's, it doesn't have as much variety because of that 505 year old purity law. And so we don't, um, we don't see any, any activity over there where they're not innovating and where they're very very traditional across the border over in poland holy cow it's a you know they just love all kinds of crazy craft beers czech republic huge craft beer scene italy huge craft beer scene uk ireland scandinavia huge uh germany 
This is the way we do it. Sounds We've so been... German. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds so German. It is true. It's yeah. Not, it's not a joke. They're very, they're quite serious about it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, it's fascinating. So how did you, how did you stumble upon this innovation? And I use that word stumble because I've kind of talked to you before and you know, it, it seems like that's kind of the path it wasn't intended, as you said. How, how did this, how did this come about? You know, the first thing is to realize that you know nothing. That's easy for me. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, <clears throat> and the second thing is you can learn a lot. A lot. Um, uh, I think there's a yoga, Yogi Berra saying about um, um, listening. You can learn a lot just by listening. I can't remember what the what the yogiism is, but um, this, you know, we because of the willingness by the craft brewing industry as a whole, because of the individuals within that group to be willing to experiment, um, people did try. We had a brewer who said, uh, oh, I can, I can emulsify that uh, oil with, with ethanol. I can just use some Everclear and I'll get some 95% Everclear, mix it because ethanol and oil, you mix it and it, it makes an emulsion. <clears throat> becomes water soluble. Well, it was less than perfect, but it was a start. And so we knew we needed to improve on that. And uh, I kept talking to uh, technology providers over the years. Uh, at one point, a year and a half ago, we were talking with three different technology providers. And I, I told my team, <clears throat> I'm not going to bet on one horse. I'm going to bet on all three horses and we'll see how this thing shakes out. And we ended up with one that ended up being a winner, but he was, in my mind, not the one that I predicted that would have uh, won out. And uh, so we're very, very happy with one uh, technology uh, that has won the day, so to speak. But it was listening uh, and probably, so I would say two things that really took us to where we're at. One is listening and the other was not quitting because I you know, the reaction to the early stuff, the first stuff was not good. Uh, inconsistent is charitable. Um, and, um, you know, ju we just kept on, keep on keeping on is the saying. That's what we did. We didn't quit and we kept looking for um, a solution. And I think today's solution, I know for a fact we're going to continue improving on it. Um, we continue to evolve. We continue to learn more things every week, every month. We've, we learned by going to this trade show last week. It wasn't just for us selling our wares. We learn an awful lot by talking to our customers. And you did that and it worked. You did that and it didn't work. So, um, you know, just continuing to be open to learning every single day is, is and, and to get better. And uh, our we don't we also don't look at our customers as as customers, it's not an adversarial relationship. Um, they're collaborators. Um, and they're happy to be part of our broad, sometimes global, um, experimental base. I mean, these guys, some of these guys are mad scientists. It's cool as heck. It's just, it's, it's really, um, great to listen to them. And, and so we get a lot of our ideas just by listening. That's great. I mean, it's that, you know, I think it's tagged as the beginner's mindset that you bring to things where you're just curious and you're always asking questions. And that seems to be, uh, even as I get older and I kind of circle the sun more and more, I try to bring that to everything I do mm -hmm. and bring no ego. I had a guy who was on my podcast and a, a future fitness podcast and 
he said once, uh, and it stuck with me because it made me laugh so hard. He's like, I always assume when I'm talking to people that they're better than me, better than me just about everything, except I'm good at one or two things. And they're better at everything else. I was like, I resemble I that remark. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, that is, that is brilliant. And I laughed really hard and I was like, you know what? I'm going to bring that with me everywhere I go because it's true. And I don't, I haven't figured out what my one or two things are yet. Doing so, podcasts. Is You're that what awesome it is? Awesome at that. Okay, great. Great. Thanks guys. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. And I asked this question in most of my interviews that, uh, with the spirit of collaboration and, and what are, what are some of the needs you have uh, as a business owner right now? What, where, where are you guys at right now? What are the challenges you're faces or things that can help the community can help you with? Oh, um, buy more beer. <laughs> no. Um, you know, we're always looking for, um, additional ways to collaborate. Um, I mentioned this before we started recording <clears throat> one of the things that we're building right now is a an R&D brewery and the purpose of that R&D brewery is uh, it's really a research laboratory for us to create different levels of um of beverages and it's not just limited to beer obviously um that we can test so one of the features of this is that we're able to do a control with five variables with of each whatever it is that we do so we can test different varieties we can test different dosage rates from there's one for instance that what we thought our standard dosage rate was um i mean this this oil you can put five milliliters into a barrel of beer 31 gallons and completely change the care the characteristics the flavor the sensory impact it's so concentrated <clears throat> but um we're we found out that if we put we were actually todd our coo he was um he was gone one friday and we were doing the sensory analysis and a couple of the gals in the office they went rogue and they said oh, we're gonna really increase the dosage rates and they tripled it and the first taste of that from this very kind of a I'll call it a potpourri of kind of a fruit basket of a variety. <clears throat> the first taste, it was like I was hit in the face with a ripe uh, nectarine and strawberries. It just, it wasn't overpowering, but it was so identifiable. And so um, it's, uh, that's something that we've learned that what we thought was our way of doing it, we've learned ourselves mostly through accidents uh, or in an, unintentional situations uh, we've learned that uh, wait there's another way to look at this and it isn't just the same dosage rate it's like you can do things and it's interesting this water soluble stuff that we've got now it has different characteristics than the original pure stuff does and the original pure stuff we don't even like selling it to brewers anymore it's just in our mind it's just a raw ingredient and we um it's too hard to work with. It's and so the technology aspect is in that that water soluble that that you know wave the wand and create this water soluble stuff and and you know the old saying if it was easy everybody'd be doing it. It was not easy. It took years to get there and to create this innovation that became water soluble that actually works. Amazing. Well. I know between Morgan and I, you have two lab rats 
ready to go. For the well, we, we need to build. Okay. That is what the community can do is I need, <clears throat> I need a large team. I'll give you an example of one that was down, to, done down in Brazil at our, at our sensory, excuse me, our distributor down there. Where in Brazil? Curitiba. Okay. About six hours south I'll, of I'll be down there in two weeks. Okay. Brazil is a huge place, but that's yeah. 330. No, let's see. What is it? It's, it's two thirds the population of the United States, I believe about the same big. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the population is in the South, Southern half because of the Amazon reason in the North. Um, they don't have interstate highways there and they don't have a rail system there. Logistics is a real problem. Yeah. That we take for granted. Anyway, um, they took 120 people as their start of their sensory panel and they were trying to get 20. And one of the people that as they went through the testing that didn't make it was the uh, guy with German beer brewing training um, who is he was the head of the entire brewing brewing ingredient supply side. He did not make it. His smeller was not and his sense of taste was not as acute as many of the other people. One of the guys that made it, he was in the maintenance department and he, he was like. He was right on all the time. So um, eventually, one of the things that we want to do, uh, so are you familiar with what a sommelier is, uh, wine sommelier? So in beer, it's called uh, Cicerone. And there's three different levels of, of Cicerone. And one of the things that we want to bring to the valley, uh, as opposed to the opposite um, of what you posed, we want to bring Cicerone training um, to the valley. And... Uh, Again, we made contact with somebody who's willing to come. So we need, we need uh, breweries and restaurants um, and bars that want to that will sign up for this. We don't have any details yet, but hopefully within a few weeks uh, we'll have details of what this is. There's three levels of cicerone, um, and we want to do cicerone training up here uh, because I think that'll elevate. Um, Everything. So two things we want. Uh, we're looking for people to be part of the sensory panel um, to help us really hone in on these recipes and the dosing rates and all of the testing that we're doing with the um, nodding knowingly to Morgan <laughs> <clears throat> um, with the with the R&D brewery. And number two, we're probably going to reach out and ask for uh, who wants to be part of this Cicerone training and so that we can uh, create that right here and really advance the, um, uh, the sensory knowledge aspect uh, to create, um, I'll say, a more advanced beer culture here in craft beer culture here in the Flathead. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Tom, I want to respect your time here, but for all of that that you just said, where do people find out more about you, uh, your company, Glacier Hopper Ranch, and how they get in touch with you if they want to be part Probably of that? Probably the best is find us on our website, GlacierHopsRanch.com, and then, you know, info at Glacier Hops Ranch, something to that effect. Uh, pretty easy to find us. Yeah, and you're pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Uh, LinkedIn, and actually we've got a Facebook page too. Okay. Uh, that uh, So we take turns who does what. I think Leah does... Um, does the LinkedIn page. Um, Kelly does the Instagram page and I do the, the, um, uh, Facebook page and we don't do Twitter. Okay. <laughs> Twitter still creeps me out. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I gotta be honest. I agree. I'm off Twitter as well. Uh, last question, uh, cause I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, what are one or two beers here in the Flathead Valley that you think people should be trying? What are two of your favorites right now? Oh man. Um, well, um, 
you mentioned the um, you know the the college Flathead Valley Community College yeah. the uh, uh, the BAM beers I believe it is or uh, they've got an awesome hazy IPA and I forget what I think the it's names of them are haze right okay all right yeah anyway it's yeah, for, coming out of the college it's really you would think it's kind of like going to the college for a haircut you know <laughs> you're taking your life into <laughs> your own hands uh, or to a you know a whatever and it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and i say that because i did that when i was in college <clears throat> and um but um their beers are good joe byers does a really really great job down there um if you like pilsners i am a real real fan of um uh, uh, uh what cole is doing at kalispell brewing with his uh with his pilsner um Two of my favorites are actually at uh, kind of go-to favorites um, is um, uh, the IPA at uh, Tamarack Brewing um, Yard Sale. Yard, no, yard Sale? Is it Yard Sale? Yeah, it's Yard Sale. And uh, that's a real good one. And, you know, but I, those are just coming top of mind. Uh, Flathead Lake Brewing does a real nice job. Uh, um the, the the other two in um, uh, in Kalispell do a good job. Backslope in Columbia Falls, real good job. Uh, we're getting a new brewery here in Whitefish. Um, Jeremiah Johnson is going to be coming in, probably not yet this year. When at the site of the old Great Northern Brewing, they'll be coming in and. Uh, uh, bonsai, you know, he's really got some cool niche beers. Bonsai. Yeah, and. Um, uh, you know there are uh, there keep there continue to be rumblings of new breweries that are you know zoned or uh, uh, zoning approval has, has happened or out in the county where the the zoning is different than in the metro in the municipalities. I think this area is really really ripe for more craft breweries. Um, brew pub, the brew pub model also we're seeing a lot of growth in that around the country. Um, it's really, really hard now to take a, a small brewery and get it into a regional status because shelf space in the convenience stores and grocery stores is so hard to get. You might have one room for one six-pack and that's it. To get three six-packs in a grocery store chain is really, really hard to do. So you're fighting against all of these others. So the self-distribution model, the taproom model, um, uh, I think that in a brew pub model, if you will, uh, with food. I think you're going to see a lot more of those go um, around. I'm not a fan of the Montana um, uh, beer brewing laws. They're archaic. And um, I'll, I'll be just charitable and just leave it at that. And it really is, has prevented a lot of growth of the craft brewing industry um, to, because of that. If you compare it to other states, it's it's unbelievably prohibitive uh but i don't think this is a political uh podcast this is yeah, so i'm not gonna get in i'm podcast we do whatever we want so okay well anyway so <clears throat> um that's problematic uh, but i do see that more breweries are going to be coming into the flathead um and that's a good thing that's a real good thing people like choices and it's a it's still and gosh with the um population growth that we've seen just in the last year 14 months whatever it's been year and a half um there's a lot more people here and you know more hotels more rooms more building and more people to drink beer here and they want local beer awesome 
Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot today. Uh, I laughed a little for sure. And I'm excited to be part of your R&D project. Okay. And Morgan, Morgan, thumbs up. He's going to be part of it too. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Burritz. Thanks. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be, I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me, let me know what you're thinking, uh, make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just wanna chat, you wanna find out more, if you wanna expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.